The Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is brought to you by ITO Coaching and Performance. You can find them at itlcoaching.com. ITO Coaching and Performance exists to build a community of athletes set on reaching goals and serving the community. They have a passion for helping people achieve their goals and dreams. ITO coaches are real people with phones, emails, and the desire to spend time with you during your training. They are vested in ITL athletes. ITL takes a communal approach to coaching, so there's always someone available to answer questions and to help adjust the training schedule. An ITL coach will be glad to meet with you to chat about your goals and find the best plan to help you meet those goals. Again, their website is itlcoaching.com. The Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is also brought to you by Blue Pineapple Travel. Blue Pineapple Travel can be found at bluepineappletravel.com. Blue Pineapple Travel are experienced travel agents who help you design the perfect trip. They are all well-traveled and knowledgeable, and they will be your advocates from start to finish. The agents at Blue Pineapple Travel love to help people plan their travel. Their goal is to match you with the trip that you want. Whether you're looking for relaxation or adventure, traveling solo or with a group, inside the U.S. or abroad, they are there to match you to the trip for you. Blue Pineapple Travel will help you curate all of the travel information out there to create the exact vacation that you want. Again, their website is bluepineappletravel.com. And finally, the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is brought to you by SlayRx. You can find them at www.slayrx.com. SlayRx is a sports nutrition company that makes products for athletes, team sports, and anyone that trains or works outdoors. SlayRx was founded by an endurance athlete and University of Georgia food scientist who was unhappy with the choices he was offered on course in long course triathlons. He started making his own mixes, and now you can enjoy those same mixes. SlayRx offers differing levels of electrolytes in their hydration products, and you can get them with or without calories. You can either take their online test at SlayerX.com or you can be tested in their laboratory to determine the exact amount of liquid and electrolytes that you need to be consuming while racing. In addition to hydration products, SlayerX offers fueling products like their product Diesel, which is available with or without the optimum level of caffeine that is scientifically proven to legally enhance performance while limiting GI upset and diuretic impact. If you're looking for alternative gels, try SlayerX Spark Plug, a Pop Rocks-like powder that combines the same electrolytes that are in their other products, encapsulated caffeine, and quickly absorbed carbohydrates. It comes in a plastic tube so it can be carried while running, and it will work to enhance and fuel your alertness, general happiness, and performance. Remember, tell them the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast sent you by using the coupon code PLEASANT2020 at checkout on their website, and you'll get 10% off anything you purchase there. That's SlayerX.com, Pleasant2020. Test, don't guess, with SlayerX. Thanks to all of our sponsors for making the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast possible. Welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching Performance, Blue Pineapple Travel, and SlayerX. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm a father of twin boys. I'm a college professor, which is of importance tonight. Um, and I've been doing this endurance sports thing for about 30 years. I have a guest with me on the podcast tonight, Dr. Brandon Lewis. Greetings. Thank you so much for having me, George. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you're here, Brandon, and I really appreciate your being here. Um, uh, a lot of times... I talk about how I'm a college professor, I'll refer to it on this podcast and stuff, but really 
there's not a whole lot of college professor George on this podcast. Um, you know, we don't talk about that all that much. Um, tonight is going to be a little bit more of college professor George. And, and Brandon is also a college professor. He works with me um, and has a background in some of the stuff we want to talk about tonight. We're going to be talking about privilege um, because that is something that is of importance and on the minds of a lot of people in the endurance community uh, throughout the United States and, and really around the world right now. And so uh, Brandon, I think, can, can offer us a, a pretty unique and important perspective on that. So Brandon, I appreciate you being here and, and, and helping out with this conversation. Thank you so much. And I'd also say that something I can also, I can offer to your audience that they may not be privy to is that in working with you, I also know how, how exceptional you are. George and I actually go back and forth as who's the greatest professor. He gets, <laughs> he gets all these, these accolades and recommendations from kids and stuff. So, uh, but you know, he, he does a great job at what he does. So I appreciate you not only uh, for, for, for being a voice um, but also lending the friendship and, and things like that and our connections with one another and inviting me. So that's, I, that's I, generous of you to say, and it's very generous of you to take the time and be here with us tonight. So Brennan, um, you, like I do, you have a PhD. Tell us a little bit about your degree and your dissertation and your background um, in, in issues of race and issues of privilege. So <clears throat> my background, I grew up in, um, well, I was born in Nashville and it's, it's, it's an interesting story. That's a huge question for me because I tell this story a lot. Um, but for the sake of this podcast and not to make it too long winded. Um, <laughs> we should also say, um, by the way, since you just talked about us competing as professors, folks who listen to this podcast are accustomed to me talking a lot. Brandon Lewis might be the one person who talks more than I do. So, so, but, but, but go well, I, consider that, I consider that an honor. So thank <laughs> Nobody's going to um, believe me when I say that because I just interrupted you to mention that, but, but go ahead. You grew up in Nashville and, and, and I grew up in there. Nashville and uh, interesting about the Nashville experience. I grew up in Brentwood. My dad was, um, um, is an African-American male that, 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 um, had a, had a really good position at Bell South coming out of Tennessee State. At that time, they were trying to recruit more African-Americans uh, to be a part of their workforces. So we grew up in Brentwood, which is a very affluent area uh, in Nashville. It's mostly white. I think we were the only black family. As a matter of fact, uh, when we bought that house in Brentwood, I can remember our windows being busted out in the house and in the um, they busted up his car as well. Um, that also happened the very first night when we moved to Stone Mountain, Georgia, which is actually very ironic, uh, but but the same the same exact um, detailed portrayal of, of, of our events from Nashville to tennis, from Nashville to Stone Mountain. Um, but nevertheless, I grew up and I was known as Mr. Black, right? And it was really interesting for me. Um, because I was, you know, that was the first time that I experienced being called nigger and things like that. Um, off, off, you know, and I'm a young kid. And at that time, it was really interesting because, you know, I didn't even know what that word, I had never heard that word, but I knew that it meant something. And I started crying afterwards, you know. Uh, my mother and my grandmother were with me. We were at a Sears department store. And, um, and, and so that's one of the, like the, the, the memories that stick out for me uh, in Nashville. Also, me, but all my friends were white. Um, um, but after that, I made the transition and we moved to Stone Mountain. And again, going back to what I said previously on the first night of Stone Mountain, again, moving into a, a, my dad had the option of moving to Alpharetta or Stone Mountain and he chose Stone Mountain. But at Stone Mountain at the time, it was still heavy, heavy, heavily populated um, by Caucasians. How, um, but white flight was sort of started to take place and uh, our windows were busted out there too. But, but at that time, the reason why I bring up, the reason why I bring up this whole story is because my trajectory or sort of like my uh, being able to maneuver and navigate in these different experiences was really awkward because I went from being Mr. Black to Mr. White 
because a lot of the friends that I started to have in Stone Mountain started to look at me, oh, because of my complexion. It's like, oh, you know, I'm the lightest thing, I'm the whitest thing and all that stuff. And it was so weird for me. So then I started asking these questions of what am I, who am I and things of that nature. Fast forward, um, ended up, you know, graduated from high school and I ended up going to Fort Valley State University, which is a historically black college uh, in down South Georgia, or middle Georgia. Uh, went there and that's when I first started to really believe in myself. I had some great professors, white and black, um, that just would, would work with me, you know, just by talking to them. And it was like this belief, if all of them had this belief in me, then what happened? I started to believe in myself. And that was something that I had never happened in my entire K through 12 experience. Um, and then, so I ended up graduating. I pledged a fraternity, which also did a lot for me, A5A. Gotta give them a shout out, Fort Valley State Gap. <laughs> Um, ended up um, graduating from Fort Valley and they had a special program. They offered um, people that were graduating from HBCUs to go to particular colleges. And one of them was University of Minnesota because they didn't have any diversity there. And so I went there and it's befitting because we're talking about privilege and, and race and things like that tonight. And it was it, the thing that, that, that I always think about is when I went there, and this is not a unique experience, when I graduated from Fort Valley, even though it's a state institution, in my mind, I'm thinking it's a black institution. So is this black institution going to put me in a position to where I can not necessarily compete, but at least just hold my own as an individual um, in, this, in this white space that I've never really been privy to as far as an entire unit. You know, all the schools I went to was, you know what I mean? Like I talked about Tennessee, that was all white. That was like when I was young. But, 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 but this was a very unique experience because I'm wiser now. Uh, a lot of my experiences, I didn't think had prepared me necessarily for that because I had been removed from the Tennessee thing and now I'm going back to the Tennessee thing. And when I got to Minnesota, I was presented again with the Tennessee thing of being like the only black male. And so I graduated, it was, it was, a, it was a difficult ride. Um, I ended up getting a 4.0. But a lot of that comes with the idea of I'm representing more than myself. I'm representing me as a black male who everybody that had uh, identified me as while I was there. So I wanted to show and prove everybody. But the fact that I wanted to show and prove everybody is also a form of me being oppressed. It's also a form of privilege, like from, from certain contexts, right? This idea that I had to prove myself and I worked harder to prove myself is all the idea and concepts of privilege. But ended up going to Minnesota, graduating from there, and taught for a few years. And then I ended up going to uh, Georgia State. That was my, my grandmother's last wish, the last thing that we had talked. She called me Dr. Lewis, something that I had wanted to do, but she reminded me of that. And after she passed in on September, 20, September 20th, um, I was enrolled at uh, Georgia State that summer, so that, that following summer, and got my PhD from there. That's a whole nother experience, whole nother dynamic, whole nother conversation. Sure. Um, and, I, and I've been working at Georgia Gwinnett College for the past uh, eight years. And I teach social foundations, uh, I teach um, basically social cultural perspectives, I teach uh, teaching and learning with like educational theory. Um, my dissertation was on, it was looking at double consciousness. Mm -hmm. And that's a W.B. Du Bois concept, right? That's a, that maybe you can ask me that later on and we can talk about that. <laughs> what conscious means, um, particularly for, for people of, of black descent. Um, 
So it looked at double consciousness and it looked at how do you battle double consciousness while also in the space of being a teacher, mm -hmm. right? And so I interviewed four black males that were, um, that gave me a lot to that, that study. Right on, right on. That, so this is, this is actually, so, so for as long as I've known you, so I, I've worked at, at, at Georgia Burnett College for one year longer than you have, um, which I like to bring up. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but, but so, I've, so I've known you for the entire time you're there, which means I've known you for eight years. And, and so this is actually the first time that you've actually sort of laid it all out like that for me, even though I've, 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 I've heard different snippets of it along the way. What's interesting to me is that this is the first time that I've seen a straight line between your personal experience and what it is that you wrote your dissertation on. Um, but we'll get to that in just a minute. Um, okay. there, there, there's definitely a few things like in, in your experience that stand out that we can, we can revisit when we start talking about, you know, what privilege is and how it works and, and, and what that means for all of us here. Um, so thank you for that, that, that lengthy introduction there. Let's, let's talk a little bit about why. <laughs> why do you use the, why do you use the term lengthy? You didn't have to do that. <laughs> thorough, thorough introduction. There you go. That sounds, it's, right. it's semantics. It sounds so, so, better. Thorough. Dude, we, 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 uh, we're, we're academics. We, we pay attention to what words mean. So, um, so thank you for that, that thorough introduction there. Uh, and like I said, there's aspects in there that we're definitely going to revisit here. So let's talk real quickly about the reason why I wanted to bring Brandon on and talk about issues of race and privilege here. And it's, and it's all about what happened here in Georgia, in the state of Georgia, uh, back on February 23rd, and then uh, coming out from there. Um, a, a man named Ahmed Arbery uh, went out for a run on February 23rd of 2020, a little bit earlier uh, this year, just before everything with coronavirus was, was really about to hit the fan. Um, in Georgia and throughout the United States. And so just as things were kind of starting to wind up here, he goes out for a run. During that run, he is shot dead um, by a 34-year-old man named Travis McMichael, who at the time was accompanied by his father, Gregory McMichael, who was 64. Gregory McMichael had been a police officer in the area and had been a, a, an investigator uh, for the district attorney's office in that area. So uh, on February 27th, four days later, the Brunswick district attorney, a woman named Jackie Johnson, recused herself from the case pointing out that Gregory McMichael, uh, the former Glenn County police officer, had been a longtime investigator in her office until his retirement only last May. And with her stepping away from recusing, recusing herself, nothing really came from the case. Nothing really happened for the entire month of March. Coronavirus was kind of cranking up and all that sort of thing as well. Um, come April 1st, the local newspaper ends up reporting on it, um, and the case kind of gets a little bit new life when it's picked up by another district attorney who's from nearby, a guy named George Barnhill. Um, Barnhill advised the police in Brunswick that there was insufficient cause to arrest, and soon after that, he then also recused himself because it turns out that his son, Barnhill's son, had also worked in the Brunswick prosecutor's office with Gregory McMichael, the 64-year-old father of the shooter, 34-year-old Travis McMichael. So a third prosecutor now takes over, a district attorney for the Atlantic Judicial Circuit uh, named Tom Durden. And again, nothing kind of happens for about a month. Basically, the entire month of April, nothing really occurs until May 5th. And on May 5th, the video comes out. Uh, of course, the video goes viral. People around the country see it, um, and there's widespread outrage. Uh, two days later, on May 7th, the McMichaels are arrested. Um, uh, the GBI ended up taking over the case, um, and, and it becomes a statewide case. On May 8th, it happened to be Ahmad's birthday. 
Um, and so people around the United States, particularly in the endurance community, decided to go out for a run on Ahmad's birthday here in order to draw attention to this. And as I said on the podcast um, about a month ago, when, when, when a lot of this was hitting the news, this was the first thing in my Facebook news feed that sort of broke through. Um, uh, it was wall-to-wall coronavirus until Ahmad Arbery. Uh, came along and kind of broke through all of that. Uh, on May 21st, a third man was arrested. It was actually the guy who who had made the video um, from the dash of his car. He was also arrested. And then just last week on June 4th, um, they had a preliminary hearing. It was horrific. A GBI investigator basically described the scene um, and, and said that they chased him for several minutes. Um, at one point, he ran out of the neighborhood. They pulled the car in front of him and chased him oh. back into the neighborhood where he had been running. Um, he ran into the ditch in order to try and get away from them. At one point, the guy who was filming it from behind hit him with his Blocked truck. Him. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, so, so the point being is that one of the things that came out from that preliminary hearing is that this was not just like this. Hey, you know, somebody pulled up. Hey, you stop. He kept on running. They tussled for a gun and shot him. They, they hunted him for an extended period of time here um, before the video kind of picks up and they wrestle over the gun and Ahmed Arbery was shot uh, by Travis McMichaels. Um, but um, the other thing that came out in that is that as if we needed more evidence, um, the, the GBI investigator testified that the man who had been making the video um, uh, heard the shooter after the shooting um, actually call um, uh, Ahmed Aubrey an, an effing inward, um, which is as if you needed more evidence as, as, as to what his primary motivation was. Um, and so, so that's kind of the case. Um, and, and a lot of people, of course, in the endurance community, I think this stood out to them um, because, because he was out for a run. And that's something that people in the endurance community do so normally and regularly and without thought to the danger they might be in from people hunting them and actually shooting them. Um, and so I think that, that that conversation around privilege and those, those thoughts that people started wrestling with inside the endurance community, um, that's why you're here tonight, Brennan. <laughs> so, I appreciate so, you. So, so I'll, I'll, I'll see your lengthy introduction with a lengthy recap of the Ahmed Arbery case. Um, so so, so let's, let's go ahead and hop into it then. So, so privilege, this idea of, of privilege. How, would you, how do you explain to people who haven't heard from it or your students or whoever it is, how do you explain what privilege is? Um, so <clears throat> I say, I think before I answer that, I, I go back a little bit on, in, in your conversation and your response to my lengthy introduction <laughs> and say that uh, the idea of needing more evidence. And I would say that, uh, you know, there can never be too much when you're a black person growing up in America. And, and you can say even, you can say black and brown or whatever that may be. And that, and that, that can go along with the overall, with your, your final question about privilege is that you're never too sure there have been, um, I mean, we go an amalgamation of, of, of cases to where black people have been killed um, and there's never enough evidence, right? Because the first thing that you're gonna do is you're gonna try to research about what type of person they were and, and look at their past, look at their history. And, you know, and that, that will help you contextualize your bias, which is different than privilege. Um, but, your bias is connected to it because you, you're afforded to be biased in many ways and have it be acted upon 
because you're privileged. So all these things have like connecting points. Um, but I mean, even with, with the Ahmaud Arbery, with the George Floyds, with the Breonna Taylors, I mean, you can look at uh, the Michael Browns. I mean, we can go through a, a, a litany mm-hmm. of people, of human beings that have been murdered. You know, there's no, there's no sort of, I mean, let, let's just be- The Trayvon Martin, the Tamir Rice's. Mm-hmm. The Tamir Rice, 12 year old, mm-hmm. that pulled out a toy gun. I played with toy guns, but anyways, um, so I want to make sure that I, 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 I at least go back and speak to that about this idea about the amount of evidence. Get to the idea of privilege and, and to speak specifically to that. Imagine as an endurance athlete, right? And you know, like, if we're talking specifically about Ahmaud Arbery, mm-hmm. who loved to run. So imagine you lacing up and not having to worry about where you are going to run. Whereas as an African-American male specifically, you think about those things. You think about being targeted from the police running into a different area. Um, there's, a, there's multiple factors that you have to like consider before you make that run. And so I would say um, to your question about the idea of privilege, um, I would say that it's the it, it of white supremacy. I'd say that racism um, affords you the the opportunity to be privileged, and with privilege becomes bias, right? So it's, it's, it's a multi-layered system. And to your to your to your question about well, how do you define these different things? So I would say that privilege is the is the idea that you're going for a run and you don't have to worry about what's gonna happen. You don't think about all these other concepts about, you might worry about if I, am I gonna get hit by a car if it's coming you know, on the backside or whatever, you know? Um, but from being targeted from an institution that's supposed to represent you as a citizen, that's not something that you really have to worry about, all right? That's, that's, that's one factor, right? But another- let, let, me, let me build on that before you go to your second factor. So, okay. so, so this is 20 years ago almost. Right. And so at this point, I was I was in my mid 20s. I went out for a run. I was not married at this point, didn't have a significant other, went out for a run. It was a dead middle of the night. Right. Dead middle of the night. Um, And and I was wearing a reflective vest, but I just kind of went out for a run. Right. Now, already privilege has been in play there, because if I was a woman, I probably would not feel safe enough to go out and run in the middle of the night. Right. Um, um, men can go run in places and feel safe in places where women cannot. And that's a privilege, right. not having right. to worry about that, not having to be concerned about that, right? Um, but in addition, as I was running along, a police car actually passed me. And, and they sort of paused for a second, and they looked over at me, and then they just kind of drove on because they saw that, oh, well, clearly I was out for running, not up to no good, right? If I was a black guy, would they have thought that? in this largely white neighborhood where I was, would they have looked at me and said, no, he's just out for a run. He's not up to anything evil, anything bad. We don't need to stop him and question him or anything else like that. They just let me go. Um, And and that was privilege at play. Let me ask you another question, George. Uh, Not to turn the table of who's interviewing me. I don't mind. I don't mind. So, so, and, 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 and we should also say here, privilege works in a lot of different ways. There's a lot of different, 
places in which people are privileged. And so there's, there's male privilege, there's white privilege, there's cisgender privilege, there's sexual orientation privilege, and, and people are made up of all these different aspects of who they are. Given all of those various things, the person that is talking to you right now is a white, male, heterosexual, cisgender, upper middle class, Christian. I, I've experienced a lot of privilege in my life. So you afford our privileges. And, 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 Which is and, the reason why you're here, Brennan. There are many different privileges that all of us are afforded to. And it's, it's interesting how that whole dynamic works as well. And we talk about this in my class. As you talked about that, I, I, we draw like little circles and, you know, mm -hmm. and things like that. And we talk about male privilege, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a whole nother, whole nother different, I think, topic. Because I think right now the topic that we're trying to stay on and stay focused on is, is um, white privilege. So the idea I would ask you is, um, have you ever been concerned when filling out an application and they ask you your race and you say, and you check, no. right? has that ever been a concern for you? Not once. Have you ever had a concern with, with writing the name George? No, not once. All right. So those are certain amounts of privilege to where you, you've seen studies that to where if you have a particular name, if you're a black person that ends the name of A, particularly if you have like Keisha or Shamika or things like that, right? To where, and then you even have to ask yourself why from a privileged perspective, right? Why is Laura, Rebecca, these are also names that end with A, right? To where you really don't have to think about these things. But as an African-American that has the uniqueness within that circle and you're applying for certain things and you know that you may not get a job. And so you always have to ask yourself, am I talking the right talk? Am I doing these particular things? And those, those play into the mindset I think of pretty much any person that does not identify as Caucasian. Now, let me, let me say this and I'll close it out and then you can ask your next question or whatnot. Some people may argue that, well, yeah, but if I'm in the Appalachian Mountains, if I'm in you know, certain areas that are very rural and very poor, then you also have things that you have to contend with, right? You're these different things that I've heard white people talk about that are really good friends of mine that, that had these conversations that grew from, from, from these areas. Right. However, where privilege comes in is that when you might approach a certain space, even if you're dressed a certain way, even if you talk a certain way, you're still white. You may not be following around a store, right? Just because of the melanin in your skin. And so there's still ways in which whiteness operates in a way of privilege that other people are not um, associated with. That, I don't know if that answers your question with some examples of white privilege. Yeah, I think it does. I think you sprinkled them in there and I think that's good. Um, so, so, but, but to your, to your last point, and I think this is the, this is the thing that I think sometimes drives white folks a little bit crazy um, okay. is, is, is the fact that the, particularly a lot of folks who grow up poor and white will say, well, I've, I've, I've really had a lot of struggle. I really had a lot of disadvantages and all that sort of thing. And that's true. Um, you can be underprivileged economically, but still be privileged racially. Right. Um, you can be underprivileged when it comes to your sexual orientation, but still be privileged when it comes to your um, gender, right? right. Um, and, and I think that, that that's, that's something that I think a lot of people have a hard time with is that there's not, like as you, Brandon, and as I, George, go through the world, we experience the, these, these sort of systems, this sort of mosaic, this, this ever-changing context of privilege 
that's based not solely on our whiteness or blackness, but also on all these other factors and the way that they're interplaying in whatever context we happen to be operating in. Now, again, Absolutely. in just about any space, I have some privilege, right? Because I tend to fall into the privileged group in so many of the primary things that, 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 um, that experience privilege, right? So many, so many of the defining aspects of one's cultural identity, I tend to fall into the privilege group in pretty much all of those, right? Um, but but um, but there are there are spaces certainly where you will be underprivileged by virtue of your race, but you will be privileged by virtue of your sexual orientation or your gender or something else like that. And, speaking and so, from whom? So Would just you be under. If you're speaking from, uh, so for let me make sure uh, make sure I'm clear. Um, if we're talking about the idea of privilege, then I completely mm -hmm. agree with you. There's privilege in many different facets. And the one thing about privilege, the way that it works is that it's so unconscious that you oh, may yeah. not recognize that you're privileged that you're walking around with. And I've had women talking about the gender piece um, remind me of that. Um, but if we're talking about privilege as a holistic sort of thing of looking at all these different things, yes. If we're talking about white privilege specifically, then um, I would have to ask, you know, when would that piece come up as a deficit, as white privilege? I don't think in any significant way it would. Okay. Um, I, I don't think in any significant way it would. Um, and so, so one thing that I had on the list that I wanted to talk about is that I think privilege can work in really big ways and can work in very small ways. And I think the, 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 there are small kind of petty ways in which it can work. Um, right. And then, then there's big structural ways in which it can work, like jobs, military, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Absolutely. Um, Running. Justice. Um, Running. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, so there, 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 are, there are small and there are big ways. I think there are some very small ways, and, and, and I only say this because I always have students pushing back on me on these sorts of things. There are mm -hmm. very small ways in which, in which white people in very unimportant contexts in which white people can be underprivileged. And there are very, very unimportant contexts in which men can be underprivileged. Give you, I'll give you an example of each one. If I go to a basketball court in LA Fitness, okay. I'm gonna be the last person picked by virtue of the color of my skin. Now, now that's not to say that I shouldn't be the last one put because I'm also the worst basketball player because by coincidence, I would be. Um, but, but I've had people say to me before, well, I go to the basketball court and they're all, they're all, they're all, they're all prejudiced against me because I'm a white guy. So that means that I'm, I'm experiencing underprivileged. And my response says, that might be true, but how important really is it that you get picked first at the LA fitness basketball court? How important is that really? Does that, does that counterbalance all of the white privilege you get when it comes to things like jobs and the justice system and not only that, and stuff white like that? owners, no. white owners in the NBA. Yeah. When you outside of that, you oh, know, sure. the owner, if you look at the ownership in, in, <laughs> in the NBA or whatnot. So I agree with you on a very microcosm, like very, very, very minute, piece. unimportant scale. So, so the, right. the, the, the other one that they always push back, guys always push back to me is, is they always say, well, well, girls, and this happened at the University of Georgia when I taught there, the, 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 well, girls, they let girls get in bars for free. Yeah. Mm. Okay. And so, so, so yeah, the bouncer will let a bunch of girls in the bar because more girls in the bar, more guys in the bar, whatever. Right. How unimportant is that? Like, right. okay. So, so that means you don't get into a bar on a Thursday night in Athens, Georgia. Are you really going to, to say that that in some way counterbalances the deep fundamental is, is institutional systemic inequalities that favor men in the society? 
um, when it comes to things like jobs and justice and, and, and stuff like that. No, of course not. Of course it doesn't mm. counterbalance that. So, so to me, I, I would say that there are, that, that, that privilege is this sort of fluid thing. Um, but, but, but to your point and to your question, are there some very unimportant places um, where there is such a thing as, as, as underprivileged for white people? Yeah, but, but they're really insignificant. You want another quick story and I'll ask you your next question? Please. So since, since we're talking about, about, about petty privilege, if you will, and, and one could argue this wasn't all that petty, but, but it's always an example that I like to use. Um, so a few years ago here in the state of Georgia, uh, the state of Georgia uh, instituted a, a more robust background check for when you get your driver's license, right? So you have to have okay. like a, an extra certified driver's license now in Georgia. Uh, and among other things, they check to ensure that you're a citizen when you apply for a driver's license here in the state of Georgia. Um, and so anybody who over the course of the past five or six years in Georgia has been renewing their license has actually actually go to the DMV to renew their license. You couldn't renew it via mail. You had to actually go there. And, and when you went there, you had to actually prove that you were a citizen of the United States before you get your driver's license in the state of Georgia. All right. So we don't need to go into the background of, of the politics of Georgia, why that was passed as a law, but it was. Um, and so I, um, my, my license came to be due. Um, and so, so I went to the DMV and I have my passport with me. Um, and, and I go to the DMV and right as I get out of the car, I start looking around and I realize I can't find my passport. Like it's gone. And I was like, well, I drove all the way here. I'm not going to go home and try and find my passport now. Right. So I go in, I push the button. I, I, I walk up to the, to the booth and I said, I need to renew my license, but I know I'm supposed to have a, a, some proof of citizenship, but I just couldn't find it. What do you think she said? No problem. We'll take care of that. Exactly. Exactly. She said, no problem. She said, it's okay. She said, here, if you sign this affidavit right here that, that, that certifies that you're a citizen, then you're good to go. And I said, all right. And so, so I signed it. I got my license and I, and I went home. If my name was not George Darden, if my name was Jorge Martinez, would she have cut me that slack? Or would she would have said, would she, she would have said, nope, you can't do it unless you have some sort of proof. You need to go find your passport. You need to go find your birth certificate. So a follow-up question to that, George, and then you can ask me the question that you wanted to have next, right? Um, <laughs> would be, how do you feel when you operate under the conditions of white privilege and or even male privilege or whatever privilege thing that you want to contextualize mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. you realize and you're aware of that, mm -hmm. how does that make you, how, like, where are you? Where are you situated with that? Mm -hmm. No, I think, that's, I think that's a perfectly fair question. And I'll say two things about it. One thing is, is what you said just a second ago. Right. Just, just a minute ago, you said you said it's something you have, whether you want it or not. Like one of the, 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 the original pieces on on white privilege uh, uh, referred to it as a knapsack. It's like a backpack that you're always wearing and that whether Peggy you want McIntosh. it or not. Yeah. Peggy McIntosh. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whether you want it or not, like you can't shed it. You can't let it go like you have it even if you really, really, really want to get rid of it. And so if I just was like tomorrow, I was like, you know what? This whole privilege thing, it's, it's completely rooted in white supremacy and, 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 and the patriarchy, and I want to throw it all off. I couldn't. I can't. I don't, I don't have the ability to do that because, because it operates in such a, a larger system um, that, that we can't break down by ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. And so, so then the question becomes, all right, so what should I have done when that lady said, Oh no, honey, you don't need. Well, not to only that though. Okay. Let me interrupt. Let me say this. Not only that though. The second piece of that is, I have a, a another one of my best friends uh, who who recognizes his white privilege, um, and he says, "You know what, Brandon? I know that this, this this these things have happened, right? Because of." He's like, "But dude, I have a family, and I'm, I'm 
not, I'm not going to jeopardize. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say no to something, even though I know I'm not qualified for it. I'm not going to turn that down and, and turn away this privilege because of the fact that it is benefiting me and my family. But that is another construct of, well, that's what privilege is, you know? Mm-hmm. A lot of people are not yeah. able to do that. And, and, so, and, and what, whether, whether you, no, it's fine. And whether you want it or not, you got it, you know? Right. And, and, and that doesn't mean you haven't worked hard, but, 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 but you have it whether you want it or not. And so, so in that moment, should I have been like, nope, this is not okay, I'm leaving. Um, uh, uh, I'm going to go find my passport because that's, no, I don't, I, I think that's, that's not a reasonable thing that's to expect happen, a person right. who's but that, but that goes back to your point thing to expect. I do think what's reasonable to expect is that, that A, I recognize it. And I think that recognizing it is an important aspect of it. And B, I try to do what I can via this podcast, via the classes that I teach, via the conversations I have with my son and with the, my friends and with the people in my neighborhood and the other people I know. I try and do what I can to address those fundamental issues in our society around white supremacy and patriarchy that ultimately set the stage for the privileges that I experienced in that moment. And so in some ways, am I maybe working myself into a place where 20 years from now, she might be like, hey, yo, you got to go get your, your I'm, I'm not going to let you sign this affidavit. You have to go find your passport. I might be working myself to that place. Yeah. But, but I think that's probably a good thing because, because undoing my privilege means I have to actually do things to undo this, this broader system of inequality um, in which we all operate. Um, and so speaking of that broader system, and I was going to say this too, uh, and then you had a second question. I think we're only on <laughs> question one. <laughs> but uh, um, is that when you recognize that you're not just recognized as an individual, like we talked about before, you, it, it, a lot of times this whole idea of privilege operates in the unconscious. You don't even like, mm-hmm. it's just things that happen. Oh, yeah that you expect to happen. But if you're recognizing it as like, oh, wow, I see this. They didn't, she didn't ask me to go back and get these things, right? Mm-hmm. But then you go a step further and you say, wow, this is a systematic oppression. Mm-hmm. This is a systematic privilege. And I think, and those are closely tied if you recognize an individual, but, mm-hmm. but people don't see that. That if you imagine it from, from a way that a system operates, then you start to understand like, this is not just me. Mm-hmm. This is not just George Darden, right? Mm-hmm. It, it operates in a much larger context. Who else yeah. is it affecting? And so to your point, do I walk away and say, oh, well, I'm, are you going to fight the person that, that gives you some type of benefit? Mm-hmm. No, that wouldn't be wise. Um, but like you said, you could talk to your neighbors, friends, siblings, you know, children, whomever, wife and everybody else, and then begin to educate people and then hopefully make it an equal level playing field. But mm-hmm. then that would go according, that would go against what most people fight for when they fight for um, a systematic regime is that you want the regime to mirror something that, that you can identify with. And when it does not mirror that, then you have people that are resisting because they're not afforded to that same peak, that, that same slice of the pie. That's a good point. That's an interesting point, actually. All right, so, so let's talk about, and I, I, want, I want to get back to the piece that's, that's and so we can tie this back to, to a piece that you have in your, your biography here. Um, that, that, that you brought up here at the start. And so I think that, that one thing that's important to understand about privilege is, is there's just as one person is privileged, another person is underprivileged. And so mm. if, if I experience that privilege, 
that means that the the somebody else experiences an underprivilege. They don't get that benefit that I got, and that's what creates that that inequality and that inequity, right? I had a student several years ago that you know, and I'm not going to name check him right now, but, but remind me when we're done talking and we go off the air here. I'll tell you who it is, and I'm super proud of this guy because he went when when he first came into my class, he didn't really understand the concept of privilege, and he didn't think it was a real thing. Um, and, and so he studied it and he said that the, it clicked for him when he thought about the terms, the, the underprivileged thing. And he said, okay, well, I can definitely say that somebody who grows up without money and without resources is underprivileged, is at a disadvantage. And so the other side of that coin is that somebody who does grow up with a lot of extra money and resources, wouldn't they also be at an advantage? Well, yes, of course. And that's when it actually started to click with him with that idea of privilege. But anyway, so, so imagine somebody who looks much different from me and sounds much different from me, telling that same story at that same DMV with that same clerk, but it's the opposite. I couldn't find my password. I went in there, I told her, and she sent me away and said, you absolutely have to show something. Mm-hmm. That amount, like if that happens over and over and over and over, over time, that influences the way that you see yourself, that influences the way that you see the world in which you live, right? Um, and and I want to tie it back to what you talked about in your biography. You're having to get to navigate. You, you talked about okay, you were you were Mr. Black, and then now you're mostly white, and now you're at this all black place, and then you're kind of thinking twice about whether you're going to be prepared for the white world when you go back to many. All that stuff. I didn't have to deal with any of that shit. I didn't have to deal with any of it. Um, and, and, and all of that stress that you had to deal with around navigating that space is not something I ever had to deal with. I, I didn't, I, I have suffered zero days of mental stress in my life, such as you described as a pretty much ongoing part of your upbringing. So can I say that? And that's a privilege. Go can ahead. Can I speak to that? Yeah, please. So what, so what, so what ends up happening, George, is that uh, it becomes normalized. Um, this idea of, like you said, if you're constantly met with this thing of no, you need this or no, you know, the idea of no, or the idea of understanding that you're not going to be granted access, it becomes normalized to where it's like, this is just the way that it is for me and my world. But you, but what ends up happening is you start to, you start to think about it. It's like, well, wait a minute, but I know that that, that, that another person would not have to jump through all of these hoops to get to wherever it is. Now, you talk about the idea of working hard and things like that. That's another idea, right? But imagine every white person talking to me has always told me, Brandon, you're a great guy, very smart, you're articulate, and things like that, charismatic. I'm going to tell you that in order to survive in this world, you're going to have to work two or three times harder than than most people because of, I think I, I think I see where you're going. Now you might be able to say to yourself, well, I've been told that I have to work harder. Right. But when they said that you have to work harder because you're specifically identified as a black person, it adds a nuance to it. It adds a layer to it, to where you may not ever be able to overcompensate that because society will bring in these ideas of the black person represents this thing because that's what you're inundated with uh, through media through through everything i mean everything that you see is like these conversations that, that whatever so it makes it much more um it just makes it much more complex and makes it much more difficult um 
the idea of understanding that this is your life and you have to, and, and the number one thing that you try to do is get people to hear you and people understand you. And when they don't, it just drives you to that place of just frustration, which brings chaos. And sometimes which brings self-defeat. Mm -hmm. And brings riots. <laughs> That's what I was leading to, but I didn't, I didn't use the word. I didn't use, I didn't utilize the terminology, but yes. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it can bring riots. That's what I said earlier. These conversations bring on um, oh, sure. much, you yeah. know. So. No, there, there, there are long books, which happily, I know a lot of people are starting to read them now um, uh, about, about these topics. And, and, and we're just starting to touch on them and mention them here in, in a one hour long podcast. Right. Um, a couple of quick things that, that, that you said um, that you've sort of referenced over the course of the past hour here so that I want to actually go back and mention here real quick. Multiple studies have shown um, that that when employers are given um, resumes, um, two identical resumes, but on one resume, there's what you might call an ethnic name or a name right. that reflects that the person that, that is submitting the resume might be black, that, that those tend to be discarded in higher levels, even Absolutely. if the exact qualifications are the same. So, so, so that's, that's something that multiple studies have shown. Another, uh, another study that I think is worth mentioning. The National uh, Bureau of Economic Research. Okay, thank you for that. that, that that's thank one of the ones that, that, that speak about that. Thank you for that. The other one, which I think is, is, is super interesting and also very unsettling, um, is that, that um, African-American boys tend to be seen as adults at much younger age than white boys do. Um, and so, so African-American boys as young as 10 years old in multiple studies have been seen and perceived and regarded as adults. Adults just who boys, are, women too. So oh, women too, oh, thank you Okay. Boys and yeah. girls. Yeah. You're right, you're right. And so, so all the things that come along with being an adult, the judgment that you would expect to have an adult, the fully formed moral compass that you would expect an adult to have, we tend to expect that from African-Americans at a younger age then we didn't tend to expect that from from white kids we tend to want to give white kids their space and we want to give them the the opportunity to make mistakes and, and we and we write things off because they're kids we don't do that for black kids um and and, and studies have demonstrated that, that that's because we see them as older um absolutely and and so so let me, let me, inter um, let me interrupt for one second this is something that i meant to say earlier that mm -hmm. because we got off on our tangents and i was just like well, particularly me, I've got a mom. <laughs> and so I apologize, George. This might be the wrong person to interview because you know, I talk so much. But uh, one of the things that I wanted to speak to earlier that uh, the way that, that, that um, this idea of no, I, think I was alluding to that earlier, the idea of when you're met with that so much, um, it just becomes a part of your world. And, and this can speak to class and it can speak to race. Now, they also are intertwined in this particular conversation because a lot of times with class, the majority of it is going to be predicated upon race, right? So it's Those like- Those two things are very intertangled there, There's in the a United thing. States. They are separate, but, they, but, but there are ways in which- yeah, They're they, tangled up in the United States. Right. And so um, me teaching in um, Title I communities, for the majority of my teaching career prior to me going into academia, most of, well, every situation that I was in, kids were always presented with no. Our kids were always presented with almost a hostile environment. So as kids growing up in public schools, um, you have a lot of great teachers, but you also have a system. Again, this goes to this systematic racism thing to where how it can affect people is that me working in those spaces, I saw how kids 
were met against opposition and would accept this idea of no because that's what these teachers have been trained to do. They've been, they've been institutionalized in a way to train these students like that, right? And so I saw this. B. Lewis, why are you staying after school and, do, and working with these kids? These kids ain't amount to nothing. And then, now, you have some people, but you also have great teachers too, just like the whole argument could be that you have really great cops. You have, so, so again, in every profession and everything, but the only thing is that, I, I guess with the cop world, you're killing them instantly. With the education world, you're killing them slowly, right? Yeah. So um, when I worked at a private school in an all-white environment, they were never told no. And this is class two. They were never told no. They were always told, they were always shown a way to where they can maneuver. If somebody tells you no, how do you go above this? And they had access. The kids had access and privilege. I'm talking about Arthur Blank's grandchildren. I'm talking about, I'm, I'm, I'm working with the elitist of the elite. I'm not gonna get the school's name, but I'm talking about a very elite school. And that always made me question, what are these kids being taught to do? They're being taught to be CEOs and to overcome. These, these kids over here, whether they don't look like them or whether they do like them, they're being institutionalized in a way to meet, know, and accept it. Thanks for that. Um, okay. so, so let's do this. Let, let, let's wrap it up and let's talk about are there any resources that, that you feel like um, that folks who, who, who want to, who are just kind of becoming aware of the, the idea of privilege and, and the fact that this is out there um, and want to understand it a little bit more? Is there, is there stuff out there that you would recommend, resources you would recommend? I have a couple things. I want to hear what you recommend as well. I would say that if you are starting in this quest uh, of understanding white privilege, then I would try to go to YouTube and look at anything um, from Tim Wise. Um, I would look at Jane Elliott with the bluest eyes. She also has a college uh, seminar that also speaks to that, um, of looking at white privilege. Um, and, and to reference George earlier when he was um, looking at Peggy McIntosh, um, uh, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's I think that's the name of it. I would probably start there, and then also in understanding those three resources that I just provided, also understand that these are three white individuals that also, like Tim Wise, talks about this idea that they're able to talk about it because of their privilege. This is nothing new from people that have been speaking about this that may not look the same, mm -hmm. um, but but went unheard because of they were complaining and they were just crying out and it's really didn't mean anything but it's, it's really interesting when you hear these people speak or when you read their words it resonates a lot more when it connects with you and it's somebody that's speaking mm -hmm. to you that that looks like you then perhaps you'll be more willing or able to receive what is being said for sure for sure um I, I'll, I'll offer a couple as well. And as it happens, both of these kind of fall into that same category. <laughs> um, I'll offer a couple of podcasts. So, so, so you said Jane Elliott, um, uh, Tim, Tim Wise, and then Peggy, Peggy McIntosh's original work, yeah. right. um, which I would agree. Peggy McIntosh's original work, I think, is, is, is very eye-opening. It's a little dated at this point because what she does is she lists something like 30, 35 different ways that, that she sees privilege in her life. Exactly. And, when I, and, and when somebody like me reads them, I'm like, yep. 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 And so, so there's, there's, 
it's a little dated now because of some of the stuff she says. Um, right. But but at the right. same time, it's it's still I think relevant. It's a good starting piece. I, absolutely, I agree. I agree. So a couple of podcasts I'll mention. One is uh, Malcolm Gladwell, uh, public intellectual from Canada. You know, he uh, he has he hasn't written a book in the last little while, but he has been doing this podcast, which has a terrible name. It's called Revisionist History, um, mm. and it's not it's not a well named thing. But in season one, I think it was episode number four, he had an episode called Carlos Doesn't Remember. Um, and it's about a kid named Carlos who grew up in really, really difficult circumstances in Los Angeles. Um, and he got some help along the way so that he was ultimately able to realize his full potential um, or hopefully realize his full potential. He's still kind of a work in progress at this point, right? He's only probably 19 years old at this point. Um, and so, so it talks about how, how fantastic Carlos is and how many students like Carlos there are out there who are never able to, to achieve their full potential because of the structural inequalities that stand in their way. Um, and it's, it's, it's striking um, and it's gripping and it's Malcolm Gladwell and so it's, it's a well-told story. Malcolm Gladwell is great, yeah. Yeah, um, the other thing that I would recommend, and this is if you have a little bit more time and you're willing to take a more deep dive, um, and if you're, if you're history-minded like you and I both are, Brandon, um, and you want to know a little bit more about how we developed into the place where we are right now. Um, there is a podcast that's put out by um, the, uh, the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University. It's called Scene on the Radio. Um, and they have a few different seasons, but they had a season from 2017, I think it is, uh, called Seeing White. And it's actually about the development of the concept of whiteness. Um, and of course, you can't understand the concept of whiteness without understanding the concept of blackness. And so it's, it's overall, it's a look of how we develop this racial consciousness and this racial hierarchy in the United States. Um, I would suggest episodes one, two, three, and four. Um, but, but of course, you can, you can um, it has like 12 or 13 episodes. So if you want to take a super deep dive, you can definitely do that. But a lot of the people like Ibrahim Kendi and folks like that that are getting a lot of attention right now for their anti-racist work, um, they appear on this podcast and, and they, they, they offer a lot of interesting stuff. So, uh, so that's, that's seen on the radio. It's seen on the radio, like, like in scene or like scene one, seen on the radio, seeing white from the uh, Center for Do uh, uh, Documentary Studies at, at Duke University. So. I'm going to set that out. Thank you, George. Also, check out the New York Times Project, 1619. That was, um, that's, that's, that's also really good. Um, it didn't really focus specifically on white privilege, but you'll be able to get some things about how white privilege operates through that. I think that's right really on. Good. That won a Pulitzer Prize. Um, yeah. So, very good. Very good. Well, B. Lewis, I appreciate you George being here. George Darden. <laughs> hey, sorry I talked so long, man. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing, to I, I apologize apologize. Nothing to apologize for. Hey, tell us this. So, so uh, let's end on an endurance note then, since we always do talk about endurance sports. Uh, uh, how far did you run today? I did not run today. I have not run in a week. The last time I ah. ran was uh, around Stone Mountain Park, and that's right there, I think, at like 4.8 miles. All right, very good. That's pretty good. Five. So typically I do that. I'll I, I run Stone Mountain, but I haven't done that. Um, I do real estate as well, so I've been working on some some properties recently, and and I haven't had a chance to – quote unquote run, but uh, I'm headed back there. Tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow. I'll right be on. That's what we like to hear. Yes, yes. Now, uh, ran, how much did you run today? So I ran five point something miles today after doing about a, about an hour long bite workout. Ooh, what was your time? You thought you were going to get me, didn't you? What was your time? <laughs> what was your time at 5.7? So, so I was taking it easy. I was taking it easy. We were having a good time. So, so. Um, I love it. All right, buddy. Thanks for being here. And thanks everybody for listening. Thank you so much, George.
That'll do it for another edition of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. We appreciate you joining us. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast. You can find us on Twitter at pleasantpodcast. You can find us on Instagram, Most Pleasant Exhaustion. And you can always download our podcast from Stitcher, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. Don't forget to check out our sponsor, ITL Coaching and Performance at itlcoaching.com, on Twitter at itlcoaching, at Facebook, facebook.com slash itlcoachingandperformance, and on Instagram, itlcoaching. You can check out Blue Pineapple Travel at bluepineappletravel.com, on Facebook at facebook.com slash bluepineappletravel, or on Instagram, bluepineappletravel. And finally, SlayerX. You can find them at SlayerX.com on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Here4SlayerX. That's the number four, Here4SlayerX. On Instagram at Here4SlayerX. Again, the number four. And on Twitter at OfficialSlayRX. Don't forget the discount code PLEASANT2020. On behalf of Patrick Ollinger and Michelle Frank, this is George Darden. We appreciate you joining us on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast.